Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information on History Hub and to download many more podcasts, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. Brian Shane is the Mary Ball Washington Professor of American History at University College Dublin, a Fulbright Scholar and Associate Professor of History at Ohio University. In this episode, part four of his five-part series on Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, The Life and Death of a Statesman Lincoln and the Crisis of Union While Deep South slaveholders undoubtedly had bolted from the Union to preserve slavery, Northern whites did not start the war intending to end it. Indeed, in an attempt to ensure the loyalty of the slave states that did not secede, Northern politicians did everything they could short of allowing slavery to expand. They pledged to pass a constitutional amendment that would secure slavery. They promised a stronger fugitive slave clause to help with the return of fugitive slaves. Lincoln, though still in Springfield and not yet inaugurated, privately assented to these. He would not assent, however, to slavery's expansion, because to do so he feared would destroy Republican Party unity and unleash a slave empire that would quickly try to gobble up Cuba, more of Mexico, and other parts of Latin America. But he did assent to the numerous compromises northern politicians offered the South in order to allow slavery to remain where it was. Even when political compromise failed, Lincoln hoped to avoid war, believing that it would be counterproductive to the aim of fostering Southern Unionism. But as a Confederate nation formed and armies assembled and Confederate diplomats were dispatched to Europe, Lincoln feared that the American nation might be unraveling before his very eyes and just as crucially before the eyes of the world. But more than just the nation was at stake. In May 1861, Lincoln told his personal aide, John Hay, For my part, I consider the central idea pervading this struggle is the necessity that is upon us of proving that popular government is not an absurdity. We must settle this question now, whether in a free government, the minority have the right to break up the government whenever they choose. If we fail, it will go far to prove the incapability of the people to govern themselves. In our era of popular government, we might assume that this would be so. But through the lens of 1860, the world looked very different. In 1848, Europe, including Ireland, was beset by revolutions, even though most were turned back by brutally effective counter-revolution, leaving monarchy and empire entrenched. In Ireland, the young Irelanders were forced into exile, many like John Mitchell and Thomas Mayhew finding refuge in the U.S., where they would ultimately find themselves on opposite sides of the Civil War. Latin America had experienced its own independent movements and saw the creation of its own republics. But by 1860, those republics seemed beset with internal division, border disputes, and anarchy. Mexico provided an ominous example, as even after it was pulling out of its own civil war, European creditors were lining up with gunboats and soldiers to see that debts were being repaid. In 1861, Napoleon III sent his armies into Mexico, and in 1862, they captured its capital. By 1864, he had installed a monarchy into the center of a once-proud republic. In short, Republican governance appeared destined for the dustbin of history, giving credence to Lincoln's mid-war claim that America was, at least for those who held liberal values, the last best hope of Earth. We do not always talk about Lincoln as a worldly man. It is his provincialism that often draws us to him. 
but we have done him a disservice by failing to fully appreciate his global vision. This global vision was gained from his reading of newspapers, his friendship with immigrants, including German-born John Nicolay, one of his personal aides. He firmly believed in an American global mission as a refuge for displaced peoples, and his fear of global ramifications of the failure of the United States nation. Those fears appeared to be foremost in his mind when he decided that the few remaining federal properties still under U.S. Army control could not be abandoned. That was especially true of Fort Sumner, a half-finished fort in Charleston Harbor that was running low on supplies. Indeed, as my own research on this subject indicates, on the very day that his cabinet decided to hold the forts, the New York press was reporting that European powers were sending warships to North America. It wasn't true, but they were reporting it. Americans must make clear that their territorial integrity would be preserved, in Lincoln's mind. But rather than go in to resupply the forts with guns blazing, Lincoln, in a stroke of political brilliance, announced to South Carolina's governor that he intended only to send a supply ship in. The armed naval ships would only intervene if that supply ship was fired upon. This put the decision squarely in the court of Jefferson Davis, his Confederate counterpart. The South could allow the resupply and thus demonstrate its own weakness, or it could fire upon a vessel delivering only bread to Union soldiers, a move that would unite Northerners and make the South the aggressors who had fired the first shot. Jefferson Davis chose the latter course of action, firing on the fort before the ship arrived. War was on. The military history of that conflict is an interesting one, filled with twists and turns well beyond the time we have. Lincoln made his share of mistakes as commander-in-chief, but mistakes that were no worse than those of Jefferson Davis. Many of his decisions generated considerable dissent and continued to generate some controversy. Even before the fires had cooled in Sumter, troops passing through to defend Washington were attacked in Baltimore, Maryland. Lincoln declared martial law, having political opponents, hostile newspapers, and state militiamen who obstructed the transport arrested. The chief justice of the Supreme Court ruled these acts unconstitutional. Lincoln ignored the ruling. His use of executive power exceeded that of any previous president. To hold on to that key state of Kentucky, his native state, and a state upon which he purportedly said the entire Union cause rested, he used heavy-handed tactics and suppressed political opposition. Nationwide, he permitted the Army to suppress overly critical newspapers and jailed politicians deemed to be undermining the war effort. He cleverly released the most vocal critic, Clement Vallandingham, but shamed him by sending him to Confederate lines. By the war's second year, with victory on the battlefield still elusive, he urged his generals to fight an even harder war, to press Confederate armies everywhere. He followed the pre precedent of his Confederate opponents and declared a federal draft to raise men, and had Congress pass a law ruling anyone who in interfered with this process subject to arrest. Critics allege that Lincoln violated the Constitution he professed to love. Lincoln, in short, responded that his duty as commander-in-chief required that he do everything necessary to protect the government that the Constitution had created. It was a fine line, and one that subsequent and current presidents have had trouble walking. But this was also the line that allowed Lincoln to take steps against slavery. There are many turning points in this conflict, but surely a silent and representative one came early in the fight when a group of slaves slipped across the Virginia no-man's land to a Union army, where they were declared contraband. Over the course of the first year, a trickle would become a flood as slaves decided to cast their lot with the Union army. Many surely had heard often exaggerated claims that Lincoln was committed to their emancipation, and some generals 
decided to act based on an emancipationist perspective. Some declared them to be, but Lincoln feared that any such declarations might undermine support of slave states in Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri, and he countermanded their orders. He had repeatedly but unsuccessfully tried to convince those states to pass their own gradual and compensated emancipation acts. Lincoln also was reluctant to allow Congress to pass acts that might take slaves from Confederate sympathizers. It is not known exactly when Lincoln arrived at the decision to issue an Emancipation Proclamation, but sometime in July 1862, while his armies were in the process of being pushed away from Richmond, he consulted with his cabinet and decided that he would take such action. Secretary of State William Seward suggested it could only be done after a Union victory, or else it would look to Americans and to the world as a desperate act. That victory came in September at Antietam, when Robert E. Lee's forces were pushed back from Maryland into Virginia, and Lincoln decided to issue the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, declaring that the slaves in those states that were still disloyal to the Union would be deemed free as of January 1, 1863. On that day, it was a very long day, he knew that the world would scrutinize the signature to that proclamation, and so he paused and rested his hands and with a bold stroke declared freedom to the estimated three million slaves in Confederate lines, and maybe as many as 100,000 in certain portions of Union-controlled areas. Critics accurately noted the Emancipation Proclamation's hypocrisy. It did not free most slaves in the Union, But this was a military strategy with a moral as well as a military purpose. It redrew the borders of the fight at a time when the Union war effort, especially in the East, had been reversed. It turned the Union army into an army of liberation. We now estimate that one in seven slaves fled to Union lines, or in many instances, Union lines found them. Lincoln was not the first to do this, but the way he did it worked while holding true to his understanding of the Constitution. Still, the Emancipation Proclamation was not widely popular in the North. Republicans took a beating in the midterm elections. And especially when tied with the crackdown on popular opposition, Lincoln looked to many to be overly dictatorial. The Civil War propelled Lincoln and the United States onto the world stage and under a microscope. Unlike James Buchanan, his predecessor, who served as the U.S. Minister to Russia, And before he was elected president in 1856 to Great Britain, Lincoln lived his entire life within the borders of the United States, though he did gaze across Niagara Falls and see Canada on a trip there in 1848. He would admit to the Bremen minister that he was likely to make many mistakes on foreign affairs, and he relied heavily on his Secretary of State William Seward, a New Yorker, who had been a political rival heading into the presidential contest of 1860. Secessionists had counted on the idea that cotton was truly king and that they could leverage it to earn international recognition. This was key, and it appeared like it might work, as in the chaos of secession, baffled European powers had no way of knowing exactly what to make of the situation. Queen Victoria and Napoleon's government in France agreed to tie their policy together, and in May 1861, both nations extended belligerent rights to the Confederacy in a proclamation of neutrality. Many viewed it as a step closer to recognition. It was not. But Lincoln, as Seward wrote to one diplomat, remained convinced that the greatest threat to the preservation of the Union remained the encouragement and aid that European powers might give to the Confederacy. By 1862, that threat had become great as Confederate agents had convinced Liverpool shipbuilders 
to build ships for them and cotton warehouses were nearly empty. Liberal Parliament member William Gladstone famously declared that there is no doubt that Jefferson Davis and other leaders of the South have made an army. They are making it appears a navy, and they have made what is more than either. They have made a nation. It was in this context that the Palmerston cabinet was to debate a proposal forwarded from the French government to intervene, to mediate the conflict. The cabinet appeared rather divided on the question. The strongest voice in opposition emerged from the Secretary of War, George Lewis, who brought a 15,000-word memoranda in which he suggested that though he was not certain the Union could prevail, he was equally uncertain that British efforts to mediate would do anything to end the conflict. As alarmingly, Seward and Lincoln's bellicose talk against Britain might leave Canada vulnerable to a Union invasion. Canada, still then a collection of several ununified provinces, might be overrun with Union soldiers. Maybe Lewis had been to Ethan Allen's latrine and seen that picture of George Washington, but regardless, he recognized that the Union Army had grown to numbers that made the provinces vulnerable, and Britain had other worries in Europe and in Asia. Because of this, Lewis had been dubbed by one diplomatic historian as the man who saved the Union. In reality, the threat of European intervention had lessened, but not disappeared entirely. Lincoln and Seward knew what many European politicians were just discovering, the power of public opinion. The Emancipation Proclamation had not garnered the praise abroad that he had hoped. Indeed, many criticized it for its hypocrisy. It had, after all, chiefly freed only slaves that were in Confederate control and kept slavery, legally at least, intact within most Union-controlled areas. Many aristocrats in particular worried that it was a call for racial warfare, something that would convert an already bloody war into annihilation. Merchants worried about its long-term effects on the cotton trade. This concern was not just felt by the elite, however, as unemployment rates in British mill towns reached new highs. And in that cause, Lincoln penned one of the most remarkable letters of his presidency, an open letter to the working men of Manchester. The British laboring classes were once thought to have been more pro-Confederate, but more recent systematic studies suggest that they leaned towards the Union. In late 1862, a public meeting in Manchester, attended by its mayor as well as many labor leaders, sought to bring clarity to a conflict that had to that point been clouded. They announced that the rebellion had been planned for the sole diabolical object of perpetuating slavery. Seizing the language of British liberal John Bright and a belief in the universal right to freedom, they expressed their support for the Union cause. And for Lincoln specifically declaring that no monarch had ever struck so tenaciously to the constitution of his country. Lincoln, in perhaps one of the first direct addresses to foreign subjects by a president, responded to the resolutions thanking the workers for their support and hoping that the spirit of peace and amity may also prevail in the councils of your queen. Then Lincoln did what he did as well as any politician of his era. He acknowledged the pain that those men in their communities were feeling. I know and deeply deplore the sufferings which the working men of Manchester and in all of Europe are called to endure. Their suffering was akin to sublime Christian heroism, he said. Then Lincoln spoke of the universal ideals that he believed united those men and his cause, ultimate and universal triumph of justice, humanity, and freedom. Recognizing the importance of public opinion, especially in more liberal societies, his government commissioned editorials from locals. They waged an aggressive PR campaign, one that generally trumpeted the Union cause, and after 1863 sought to recast, in Europeans' eyes at least, a war to preserve the Union as a war to end slavery. Confederates, who had long asserted their right to independent nationhood, had no easy moral response. 
And only in the waning months of the war would a belated and top-secret mission to the British government hint at the possibility that they would pass gradual emancipation in exchange for recognition. By that point, it was far too late, as Lincoln's armies had been victorious. Lincoln's vision of America was one that had grown to include African Americans and to embrace a more capacious understanding of the Union as a beacon for the world. Jefferson Davis and the Confederacies had not. We hope you enjoyed this History Hub podcast. To receive updates on the latest History Hub podcasts and papers, please subscribe to our mailing list on historyhub.ie.